Welcome to the Overford Podcast. In this episode, Jason and Guy are joined by Carly Thorpe, partner at law firm Walker Morris. The trio discuss the smash and grab adjudication. What is a smash and grab adjudication? How does it work? What's all the jargon about and how can you recover from a smash and grab? Hi, Carly. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure. I suppose we'll kick off with smash and grab adjudications. Okay, great. Well, I suppose as the first thing, it's what what is a smash and grab adjudication? I always like to explain it as you're not asking for a true valuation of the works. So the adjudicator doesn't look at any quantum in terms of proving what works have actually been carried out. It's an adjudication based solely upon the fact that no valid payment notice or pay less notice has been served. So it's that contractual right rather than looking at the true valuation. So when you look in the Construction Act, that says that in the absence of a valid payment notice or pay less notice, then the sum stated in the application for payment or in a default payment notice will be the notified sum that's due. And it's that sum that you're asking from an adjudicator. I only learned recently where the term smash and grab actually comes from, which I thought was interesting. So it wasn't introduced until a case in 2013 called CG Group and Breyer. And it was actually the defendant's barrister, James Bowling, who's at Fourpum Court Chambers, who used it in his submissions. And then the judge, Mr. Justice Aikenhead, referred to that in his judgment. Since then, it's just been called a smash and grab. And other judges have said that smash and grab has quite a negative connotation because, you know, I think before we had this in adjudication, smash and grab to me meant like a robbery of some kind. But because it's been adopted in the industry, that's just what everyone's continued to call it. Sometimes you hear the technical. Oh, no, no, it's adjudication. Yeah. Yeah, it's, things, it's, it's less robbery, like you say. <laughs> I mean, I think it's but unfair one, to characterise it as a robbery in that you have to think about why, why was the mechanism introduced in the Construction Act? And it's meant to be there as an incentive or a deterrent to encourage the paying party to comply with the contractual mechanism and serve a payment notice or a pay less notice. Because prior to that amendment to the Construction Act, I think there was a growing problem in the industry where parties would make an application for payment and then the the paying party would just ignore it and wouldn't serve anything. So I, I think the smash and grab mechanism does its job in encouraging parties to actually follow the payment provisions and serve the valid notice. What happens when you get one? What do you do? Well, I suppose if you go back, does do all construction contracts then come with this mechanism? Is it enshrined in this via the scheme of the construction contracts from the Act? I've seen mechanisms in the in subcontracts where you've got to, your application never be, doesn't become the notified sum or the default payment. You've got to reapply or serve another notice, which takes the scheme provisions another step, so it gives them another reminder as the main contractor to comply with their obligations. It's again, it's different to the scheme, but it appears to be a contractual mechanism to put that another step in. So if someone else missed an application, or sorry, a payment notice or a pay less notice, it gives them that step. That's, that's an interesting point, that Jason, because under the Construction Act, if your contract doesn't have an adequate mechanism for payment, then the provisions of the scheme will be implied, the provisions of the scheme for construction contracts, which is a statutory instrument that, as as you know, has that mechanism that talks about the notified sum. So that 
that begs the question of well, what what is an adequate mechanism? And the Construction Act says that it has to make clear the sum due, how that sum has been calculated, and what the final date for payment of that sum is. And I mean, I don't know if there's any authority on this, but to me, I wonder if you can't have an adequate mechanism for payment unless you have some kind of way of there being a notified sum. So that mechanism that you suggested there of a second notice, almost like a default payment notice, is a good idea because I think it would still comply with the Act because there's still that route of having a notified sum. So what happens if it, so we norm, personally, I normally strike that I want to see doing a review. So I think it, it should be an automatic mechanism rather than a, a revised notice because, you know, everyone should, mm. in theory, comply with their obligations on, on a payment mechanism by serving a payment, pay less or pay, payment notice. So having the applier to reapply, I think, is a step too far personally. I can I, I agree. I think it does comply with with the scheme and ad, as an adequate mechanism. Yes, it depends who you're advising, doesn't it? Because from yes. a paying party's perspective, it, it's obviously going to be helpful that the other party has to apply a second time. Yeah, if you're you lower down the food chain, you don't want to be applying twice. Mm. <laughs> but uh, you want your automatic right to a notified sum. Yeah. So in simple terms, what we're saying then is that there's an application for payment. Someone applies for some money. A payment notice should be served in response to that application. Potentially a pay less could be issued. If a payment notice or pay less notice is not issued, the application becomes a default notified sum, basically the amount that the payee is entitled to be paid. That's right, yeah. So the caveat to that is, provided that the application for payment itself is valid. Okay. There's, there's many ways you can dress up an application for payment, I suppose. What would you probably look for in terms of a, a valid application for payment? Yeah, well, this is one of the things. If, if I'm acting for a party that's just on the receiving end of a smash and grab adjudication, one of the first things to check is, is the application for payment itself actually valid? Now, there's been case law that an application for payment doesn't actually have to be called application for payment on the face of it, but it has to be substance, form and intent, an application for payment. And what that means essentially is that the party who receives it, looking at that objectively, would they reasonably have known that it was intended to be an application for payment? So, I mean, if if it looks like a valuation and you can see from looking at it that it's intended to be an application for payment, then it probably gets over that first hurdle. But there's been cases where, you know, a party's just sent an email and then tried to say that that's their application for payment. And you can see how, looking at it objectively, the other party might not have realised that it was an application for payment. But it's other things as well, like um, it has to be for the correct valuation period. So I had a case where the contract said you had to value to the last day in the month and the application for payment, in fact, only valued the works to the 27th of the month. And an adjudicator said that actually that's enough to mean that it's not a valid application for payment because it's not for the correct period. That's a bit harsh. But um, we've, we've had one where ours wasn't found valid and though it said, please find attached application for payment. It had the gross sum less previously, was it certified? So there was a net sum due, but it didn't have the final date for payment on it. And that was found to be invalid, but there was no requirement for that. But Again, that was found to be a deficient application. And we've had them where it, it should be the last paid 
It's, again, the, the act and scheme is a bit confusing. It's it's the definition is it payment or certified is what should be less previous, should it be less previously certified or less previously paid to become mm. a valid notified sum. So it's a difficult, you know, we've been weighing that up. Yeah, yeah I mean, my, my top tip for clients on that is that it should always be the amount previously paid because I think if you put amount previously certified, yeah, as as you say, Jason, that, that could still be a valid payment notice. It says that in the Act, but I, I think it leaves scope for confusion where you've got situations where amounts have been certified but then not necessarily paid. So it's you see applications for payment where it says the amount certified, but then you can't see what the sum actually due is. But when you're on a 45-day payment process, as some subbies are, um, mm. you're always going to be a month behind on your payment, uh, payment paid. So it's going to be an inflated application. In theory, it's got a month and it's got the month and a bit. You know when they make the application, so they're not going to be say they're going to be applying in March, but it'll be what they've been paid against the January app. The February one still doesn't fit there, if you know what I mean. So it looks like it's going to be an extra whatever thousand. In, you know, if you if you do it on the previously paid rather than the previously certified. So in that situation, then I think you should put certified on a line and then paid mm. on a separate line as well. Because I mean, the key thing is that somewhere in that statement, it has to say what is the money that is expected to be paid across. So what's the sum that they're actually expecting to receive? And so you you kind of need to put what's previously been paid in order to have the accurate sum. So almost it needs to be like a statement and say, you've got your monthly valuation is this, monthly application, sorry, is this, overall gross is this. And so you have a, you have a double liner. I suppose the point is if you're deducting the amount you've actually been paid, you're always going to be on, as a payee, you're always going to be on the right side. Yes. Of the amount you're owed. So what happens if you're on the, you have a smash and grab run against you, the other side win. The referring party win, smash and grab, the technical adjudication. So what, what can you do next? Yeah, um, I would say the first thing is check, can you correct it in the next interim application? So, I mean, that depends upon where you are in the project and how much money is left to pay to the other party. But sometimes you can pay out the on the adjudication and then just deduct it next month. So you essentially get it back. Um, from sums that you would otherwise be paying out on the next month. Of course, you can't do that if you're near the end of the project or there's not enough value in, in the works to come for you to actually recoup those monies. So another option is to run your own adjudication requesting a true valuation of the sums. But the key point of that is you need to actually pay out and comply with the first adjudication, the smash and grab first. So you pay out the monies you then run your own adjudication, which you would hope would conclude that the other party's been overpaid. And at that point, the other party then has to pay you back. So it really becomes a cash flow issue then. And you get your money back eventually, provided that in the interim, that other party doesn't go insolvent, of course. What does a true valuation mean? Well, I see it as a valuation of the works at a point. So it's looking at all the, the measured works, what's been done, the contract works any variations and it's assessing a true valuation of them at that fit at that point in time which we is an interim or the final final account basically i've seen a few smashing grabs during an interim but it's usually towards the end because the, the relationships usually broken down when you get an adjudication especially if you come in for a, a large technical 
So what you're saying in terms of a true evaluation, then that's um, an assessment of the works that have been properly carried out. Yes, right. Point in time. So essentially, that should determine the correct sum that should be paid to the applying party. Yeah, it's the it's basically what the assessment of the properly completed works in accordance with the contract at a moment in time, evaluation date. Well, we've discussed smash and grab and true valuation. Would you not just run a true valuation dispute rather than a smash and grab? Well, I suppose the true the benefit of having the option of the smash and grab is that you don't have to if you're if you're the party seeking payment with a smash and grab, you don't have to go to the effort of actually proving the value of the works. And that can be a significant task in circumstances if you've got a big delay claim, if you've got loads of variations, loads of loss and expense, for example. You might need to get expert evidence. You've got to pull a lot of documents together. So that takes a lot of time and investment of money as well. Whereas a smash and grab, you're just running it on the contract terms. So it's much cheaper to do. It's all factual, isn't it? Is your application valid? Did you issue a notice? Did you issue a pay less notice? And if it all aligns in theory even if successful yeah so essentially not having to prove the value of the works that's properly being carried out yeah you're looking at three or four things and an entitlement under a contract rather than all the extra effort and detail and narrative you'd have to go into to prove your entitlement to a variation of the actual facts that that dry lining for example is installed correctly so you might get a quick win of a smash and grab Yes, you smash and grab. <laughs> oh, technical adjudication. Yeah, I, mean, I, I see all of these um, articles in, in the legal press and people's blog posts and stuff that say, oh, has smash and grab kind of run its course and will we see a decline in the number of such adjudications? But I think actually they'll they'll continue because they are a way of getting money quickly. And in times like the current economic climate where so many businesses are struggling for cash flow, well, a smash and grab can do a lot to alleviate that, even if in a few months' time you'll have to pay some of the money back. So if you think that you have a valid application for payment and there's clearly no valid payment notice or pay less notice, it's worth giving a smash and grab a go because they can be done relatively cheaply. And if you've got a larger dispute on the table, you know, gaping, a growing change, is it worth, it's almost a tactical to bring a discussion but the parties to the mm. table to discuss the issues because everyone becomes polarised when their accounts, you know, gets further and further apart, and you know each respective valuations and having a the threat of a large technical adjudication where the payer's going to have to try and recoup it at true value. It might bring parties to a conversation, really. Sometimes. What about timescales associated with? So, say you run a smash and grab, then you you lose. Or someone runs a smash and grab against you they lose, you then have to pay someone money. Could you start a true valuation in response to the smash and grab? I understand you can if it's a separate payment cycle or it's a separate, let's say it's a final account against an interim coincide, but it's now or later. Is that correct, Carly? Yeah, so if you've got an interim smash and grab, you have to comply with that before you can go for a true valuation of the works of that same interim application, you might be able to run a different dispute, an adjudication on a different dispute at the same time without first making that payment. But it would have to be something completely unconnected to the interim payment cycle that relates to the smash and grab. 
So that can be difficult where the interim payment includes a lot of items that are then going to be in the final account or are related to extension of time or something. It's difficult to find a separate dispute that doesn't have any overlap. And an adjudicator can't adjudicate on something that's the same or substantially the same as a dispute that's already ongoing before another adjudicator. So in most circumstances, you have to pay first, then you can argue about it afterwards, that pay now, argue later rule of adjudication. Yeah. So, for example, say you had, you did an in, smash and grab on interim 10, you get your decision halfway through interim 11. You've complied under, you get an in, a decision 45 days later, you're midway through the next payment cycle. So you've had application 11. Yeah, and the, could you run a true value on, on 11 after you've got your decision on 10? Or would that be pay now, argue later? Or would it depend on the facts? Yeah, I think that really yeah. depends on, on the facts. So what items are in each interim application, what the provisions of the relevant contract are. I think that's something that would be very yeah. fact-specific. Okay. So I, I think, you know, the general rule is in most circumstances, you have to pay now and then you can argue later. But if you are able to identify an entirely separate dispute under the same contract that isn't impacted by the smash and grab, then you might be able to run that separately. Okay. Um, I, I did just want to raise, because I, I think we've been talking quite positively about you know the, the cash flow benefit of smash and grab, which it definitely has one. But I suppose the note of caution for me is that just because you get that smash and grab decision in your favour doesn't mean that you're actually going to get the money because we often see where there'll be a decision and then the paying party doesn't pay and then you've got to enforce it through the courts which means that you have to make an application to the courts and then have a hearing where a judge will look at the adjudicator's decision and in most cases will enforce it and, and issue a court order saying yes it needs to be paid, it needs to be complied with. The difficulty is that that process of getting a judge to look at it in a hearing could take up to six months in some circumstances. So you might not actually end up getting the money straight away. And during that process, you've got to pay your legal costs for the adjudication initially, and then legal costs. So there's a court fee to start the enforcement proceedings, for example. You will no doubt have to pay lawyers to deal with those enforcement proceedings. So Whilst it's a really good negotiation tactic and it does technically need to be complied with, the adjudicator's decision, you do always have to keep in the back of your mind that there's a risk that you could go through all of that and not actually get the money. Are you seeing more and more of the enforcements nowadays? Because they were quite few and far between. But I know we've been involved in a, a number in the recent past. What's your opinion on these? Are they becoming more and more, and more prevalent? Yeah, I, I see a lot of where people get an adjudication decision in their favour and then the other side doesn't pay immediately. And so then you get into a process of where you're threatening enforcement proceedings and then you start the enforcement proceedings and often the case will then settle before it gets to a hearing. But that's a very frustrating process because you've had to draft all the court proceedings, incur the cost of doing all of that, and then the other side pays you and, and it leaves you where you've got extra legal costs that then you've had to incur. So whilst, you know, if you look at the judgments that are coming out from the Technology and Construction Court, there's a few adjudication enforcement decisions each month. So there's definitely a lot of them happening. But I think actually there's even more that don't get to the judgment stage because they settle after it's been issued at the court. So before it becomes public knowledge. So 
what does that mean? That means that getting the adjudicator's decision isn't necessarily the end of the story. And there might still be more money that you need to spend and more stop, more steps that you need to go through in order to get payment. That's, that's helpful. Um, still, but it's insane. like say, it's an interim. It's not as final as it probably was as a decision. You know, you got your decision and you just, it was that you just paid. Or the other side, look, at you were getting your money, but it is, like say, more of a frustrated procedure now with the um, the enforcements becoming more prevalent. So whilst there's risk associated with running smash and grab adjudications, probably better off having a proper valuation adjudication in reality. There's no guarantee you get your money. Yeah. And in adjudication, parties bear their own costs. Yes. Legal costs. Mm. Who tends to pay the adjudicator's fees? Well, we've seen a few where varies it's it's usually the paying the paying party has to pay the fees um but we've had it on a few technicals where the referring party has to pay the adjudicator's fees and recover it as a debt so they might get 100 grand on the technical but they've got to pay their adjudicator's fees and recover that from the you know the paying party as a debt i can understand why the adjudicator would do that to, to get his fees paid but um you know it's quite it's a reasonable position to take but it's been, I'm seeing that more and more often. Are you, Carly, where they, the the winning party has to pay his fees first? Yeah. Or her fees? Yeah, we've, we've seen that on a number of occasions recently where the adjudicator has said, you know, the losing party has responsibility for my fees, but the winning party should pay my fees in the first instance and then they can claim it back from the other party, particularly where the winning party is the referring party who actually started the adjudication. I, I think that adjudicators have a concern that perhaps the losing party who was responding to the adjudication might not pay their fees. So from the adjudicator's perspective, they they want to get the money from one party and then they, they've got their money and then it's up to the parties to then fight it out, which is understandable from an adjudicator's perspective. But from the perspective of the winning party, it can be frustrating that you've won, but then you're still having to pay out the monies and then potentially go all the way to court to try and recover those from the other party. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Overford podcast. We hope you found it useful. Although every effort has been made to ensure the accuracy of its contents, no reliance should be placed on it and the podcast should not be construed as legal advice. We hope you'll join us for the next one.